hello there. Nice to see you. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed, and as always, and ever shall be, your gracious and grateful host, until the sun explodes. That's how long I hope to stay around here, folks, doing the show. How you doing? I am doing fine. I am doing fine. Um, but I got a bit of a problem, and that is that I don't know if anybody's noticed this, all the five people that are listening to this show, but I do about a five-minute intro, and then I introduce the guests. And in the five-minute intro, the beginning is that shtick that you just heard, which is basically shtick. And then I got about three or four minutes, actually three minutes to fill before I get to the next guest. And I'm like, blah, blah, they're great, and they're awesome, and that's what they did, and we talked. Basically, that's the intro. But I've been trying to fill the void. It's not easy for me. I, I got a lot of stuff going on. I invented, invented, I, I did the international high five section, which is previous episodes. I will continue to do that. For those of you who are unaware, it is a segment that I just use to fill up time, which is where I pull out a particular country that is listening to the sound of my voice. And I play the national anthem and I talk about them and all that. And it's fun and I'll keep doing it. But I need more material, goddammit. So I was thinking about this. I am going to start the Inspired Minds Jukebox, ladies and gentlemen. And what is the Inspired Minds Jukebox, you ask? I'm glad that you did. What I'm thinking about doing here, excuse me, is that I would like people who are listening to this podcast to send me your favorite song, or any song for that matter, really. Uh, Just the name of the song and the artist. I can go from there. Send it to inspiredmindsjukebox at gmail.com. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, that is indeed Inspired Minds Jukebox at gmail.com. All you got to do is send in the song. I will play it if I pick you, you lucky person. If I, if I pick it out of all the four entries that I get, if I'm lucky, I will play that particular song at the next uh, show. I'll probably do maybe the verse and the chorus if I can get to it. Um, preferably in the old middle-aged guy music thing who used to be like a kind of a goth, like like goth adjacent, basically, like Depeche Mode, but also into U2 and The Clash and television, and I'm that guy. So if you can get it within that sweet spot, great. If not, I can even learn Garth Brooks. It's not a big deal. <clears throat> so with that in mind, oh, and lastly, to kind of sweeten the pot, if he, uh, if I did pick one of the names out and I do perform it, <laughs> perform, if I uh, if I do sing the song, then I will donate some money that I uh, will do to the D.D. Hirsch Foundation, which is in Los Angeles, a fantastic suicide prevention program. Certainly saved my life when I experienced a loss. My goodness, what good people. So that's another way to sweeten the pot. How much am I going to send? I'm a student and I'm a caregiver. I'm not like Daddy Warbucks or anything. That being said, really quickly, I will show off a little bit of kind of what you might expect by uh, this weird proposition. Uh, I'll show off, uh, play a little song here, and that would be, uh, just to get a sense of what you might get, that would be a band called Squeeze, once again, middle-aged guy, and uh, the song is called Black Coffee in Bed, play a couple of bars, and here we go. I love this intro. Alright, see what happens. There's a stain on my notebook where your coffee cup was. In the pages, now I've got myself lost. All right, there's that. Oh, I can also do this. Speaking of middle age, uh, middle age guy, one of the best songs in the world. I don't care what you say. 
damn it. <laughs> Sorry, evil fan. You get the idea. InspiredMindsJukebox.com, ladies and gentlemen. And why did I sing that particular song? Well, not the Crowded House one, but the Squeeze song. Because the next interview, I did it. I filled the space. The next interview, uh, E, guest that I did, this guy named Chip Jacobs. Good God, what an incredible interview. This guy is fantastic. I always say that about every episode of each person, but this guy, they're all good. Uh, he's an award-winning author. He's a journalist. He's done everything, this guy, but he writes mostly about hidden L.A. And like the true crime version kind of of this guy, Hugh Hauser, that I've been babbling about that very few people know, except he did. And he's written so many amazing books. There's one about this uh, this guy named uh, Gordon Zaylor who did the music for like Plan 9 from Outer Space and a lot of like early weird uh, electronic uh, music and such. And that was incredible. And then he has another... Uh, expose about uh, about Los Angeles smog like back in the 70s. This guy's absolutely brilliant. We did talk about Squeeze because he's a massive Squeeze fan because he's awesome and that's what you should be if you do like Squeeze. And we also had a really interesting conversation, specifically in the middle of the interview that took a really interesting turn. He wrote a book about a location that changed my life forever and he did not see it coming. So it was a really incredible interview and just an incredible human being, filled with kind of a brilliant writer. I, I I really enjoyed this, as you can tell. Um, anyway, it was fantastic. And as always, I really hope that you enjoy this as much as I did making it. Because God damn it, it was it was trans transcendent, transcendent. I was trying to say incandescent and transcendent, and it came out with that weird hybrid. At any rate, I hope you're having a great night, day, evening, four a.m. wherever you are. And again, like they always said in Hill Street Blues, be careful out there. Take care of yourself. Well, hello, Inspired Minds, Dazzled Throng. Please welcome the lovely and talented Mr. Chip Jacobs. Chip, say hello to the Dazzled Throng of the Inspired Mind audience. Hello, Throng. I hope you're having a wonderful day in all your great Throng unity. <laughs> throng. I want to start a band called Throng Unity. <laughs> I know it's a little it's a little dangerously close to thong, so I want to make sure there's an R in there. If you got to slide it in, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as you may have noticed, because you did listen to another one, I start off this podcast with the same question every time, and that is: When you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song or a book or a movie? Go. I wanted to be Johnny Gage in Rescue Fifty One because. He was good looking. He had a way with the girls. He helped people and he lived an exciting life. And I, I was the youngest child in a pretty lonely household. And I didn't, I already worried about being bored and I liked excitement. And I also liked the fact that, you know, he, uh, you know, had a certain spirit about him and, um, you know, um, he got to be around pretty nurses. I don't know what that show is, and I know everything. How do Rescue Fifty One? You never oh. saw Emergency Rescue Fifty One, anyway. Oh, wait, the TV show from nineteen seventy one. That one, exactly. Randolph Mantooth. Randolph Mantooth. Yeah, yeah. He was my first uh, boy crush or man crush, whatever. Yeah. So I, uh, I remember. I just kind of, 
you know, when you're, we're all young, we're looking for an identity. And I just thought he lived the life. And then I decided I wanted to be uh, a professional USC football player. And then eventually I settled on, I wanted to be Paul McCartney's son. Paul McCartney's son? Yes. Can you pull on that thread, please? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I actually, I remember being uh, a little kid in the late 60s, very little kid. And I heard the Beatles, Mr. Postman. Uh, and I must have listened to that 50 times. And I just, I don't know, there's something, I think it's because I had um, uh, musicians on my background. It just, um, it, it like flipped a switch in me that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Something creative, you know, pulling something out of the air. And, you know, uh, the Beatles were, the Beatles were everything my house wasn't. So I wanted to be part of their group. And I thought I could do a good Paul. I'm left-handed and I had brown hair. Well, there you go. <laughs> So you've kind of answered, honestly, the uh, part B of this question, and that is, how did that create a through line for you, that inspiration? But I think you said it, right? No. I, um, like Mary Lee, I, you know, discovered distant worlds in books. And, you know, I love the Three Musketeers, uh, Lord of the Ring, obviously the Jungle Book, but, you know, um, those Robinson Crusoe. Things that are just so different from living a suburban life. And eventually, uh, my parents gave me an Encyclopedia Britannica set. And I told myself, I'm going to read this entire volume by the time I graduate from high school. Of course, I get, you know, 5% through the A's and I give up. But I, 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 I hated not being inside of a story. And I hated not knowing what a word meant. And, and I, from the very early age, and I would just go and pick up one of these fat books and, you know, read that fine print, that which is why I need glasses that they for typing. Right. So you were that kid like me. You came across a word, and I still do this to this day. I'll look it up. Yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it just, it's like a mystery to be discovered. So yeah, it's, um, today you just look on your phone, you know, on your Webster app, but I miss the actual physical process of looking it up and then going to the the source. I mean, it, I think it just, it sparked learning that you, you only fly over these days. A a thousand percent. It's a great phrase too, because I say the same thing about music and we're going to, I do want to get into that in a second here, but your point is completely valid when it also comes to the music side, because, you know, when we were young, we would go to the record store and you would have, you have to drive there and there was gas involved and there was this investment in it. Heck heck yeah. I mean, Jeff Bezos, I'm not a materialistic person, but he sure made materialism um, almost carefree and made you detach from the value of money. So yeah, I'm, I, I know that sounds very old fogey-ish. Uh, I just don't, I, I don't like it as much. I, you know, there's something about, you know, um, like when I was in high school, and this will be in my next novel, we got so excited when our favorite band was about to release an album, because that means we could rush down there, we could listen to it, we could party, we could get in massive arguments, we could be me- music snobs, mm-hmm. we could debate where it's going, who's the best member. It doesn't seem like we're in that anymore. And it was, I mean, I remember when Led Zeppelin released their last album with all these alternative color covers. I mean, that was the subject of ferocious discussion. And, um, you know, we don't have that now. Yeah. No, we don't. And uh, you're absolutely right. It was the argument. I mean, I used to work at a record store. Yeah. Right. And one, but I, I had two amazing jobs. One, they were very influential. One was a record store and one was a video store. Yeah. Uh, and, what's a what's a video store? It's, it's, it's called a museum. <laughs> 
that's what it's called. I know, but yeah, but it, I don't know. The, it's Teddy Roosevelt, who I, I just admire so much. He, he plays a part in my first novel, I will say. I'm not trying to plug it. But um, he once said, all, all movement is not progress. And I feel that way about technology. You know, just because you can get the latest update doesn't mean it's best for you. And I think technology, well, I think one of the problems we find with so much turmoil in the world, technology is just racing far ahead of, te- of society's ability to adapt to it. And also technology can suck the joy out of simple pleasures. So, I, you know, uh, in my next life, when I come back, I'm not sure what era I want to um, come into. I want to be a Quaker. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I fell in love with the progressive age because it was, it was an optimistic time. Inventions were happening, but they, it wasn't overwhelming people. And, you know, it was still a very literate, romantic um, you know, a quixotic time. Yes, he did have to go to the bathroom in an outhouse. Right. And, you know, a simple infection could kill you at 40. Nonetheless, it, it there was a dreaminess about it. And I, I, the romance of it and a pretty girl with a parasol and buying an ice cream in the park and sitting in a literary par- a parlor and reading a classic book. And that is for me. Yeah, it's one of the, uh, the North Stars uh, musically in my life. Is the old Quaker hymn, "'Tis the gift to be simple, "'tis the gift to be free." Wow. Right? "'Tis the gift to come down where you want to be, and when we find... I can't remember that. (laughs) But that's such an important part, right? No, that's simplicity. So let's talk about music, because... Can I just say something about the Quakers? By all means. First of all, they make really excellent oatmeal. Secondly, um, they've maintained their lifestyle... Uh, not with blinders on, but with sunglasses on, because they know, you know, maybe maybe the rat race uh, isn't all that. And so I'm I'm very mystified by the Quakers, I must say. Um, and they and they you know they don't lose sight of what's important. Anyway, they really don't. Um, so let's talk about music as it relates to your writing and yeah. art in general, or maybe writing in general. Sure. Um, well, um, I, I had a, um, if we wind back the hands of time in the, to the mid late nineties, I was a newspaper reporter, investigative newspaper reporter, absolutely loved what I was doing. And it was the, it was the profession made for me, the excitement, the mystery, the challenge, the competition, the writing, it, it just, you know, some things click in your heart and that's it. However, I had this yearning also to write something more enduring than some scorching expose. And I left daily journalism to pen my first book. And I really discovered who I am beside behind the persona. And I came from a very creative family of movie makers, musicians, Broadway people, but music just coursed through me. And the more I learned about my grandfather, who was a musician that came from Tin Pan Alley in New York, wow. was here here in the silent movie era. In fact, I saw a concert, I've seen rock concerts in downtown LA theaters where he performed. Wow. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was very electrifying, Jeff. And it made me realize, you know, they lived through me. Maybe I lived through them wherever they are. And, you know, when I saw videos of my grandfather playing or went to IMDb. It freed me to be the hack 
guitar player I really wanted to be. Actually, it really helped my playing. You know, it's it's a wonderful thing when you realize who you are and you're connected to your ancestors. And so Lee Zoller, you know, he worked on 900 different movie projects and he always, and he usually played on the same scuffed up Hammond organ. Um, And back in the day, you know, they used to rehearse out on the set. And um, what set me on my career to being an author is in 1993, there was a terrible fire set of fires, including in Pasadena where I grew up and that organ, which my mom had inherited, it burned down. It burned, liquefied. And when I asked my mom, why are you so upset about the destruction of this relic? I started to peel back history. And I also started to peel back my future. So that, you know, my grandfather's organ, you know, piano, it sounds weird to say my grandfather's organ, but, you know, that did change everything about my life. That does not surprise me at all. In fact, I tell people sometimes that um, when people die, I say this a lot that when someone dies, there's usually an heirloom, right? It's like the car, the boat, the money. Yeah. But the the far more, uh, the far bigger uh, heirlooms are the emotional ones, the perspective ones, the ones that have passion, right? Or sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's abandonment. Whatever those, those hand-me-downs essentially are can really shape a person. And it sounds like you really got a great hand-me-down from your grandfather. Uh, I did, uh, even though I, you know... Um, when I was a teen in a bands in my teenage years, uh, we used to play in this structure down the hill from my parents' house. And uh, instead of worshiping this organ, I was just annoying 17-year-old with a Les Paul. And we would put our weed on top of the organ, beer, uh, our cores, our guitar cases, you know, our, our jackets and just really disrespecting history. I did not know yet. And I think I had to go through that process of asking repentance. My mom, you know, only hinted at some of these things when I was a little boy. Uh, but she said she would tell me there was murder in your family. There's Hollywood in your blood. And also where we come from a family where people return from the dead to assure us all as well in a continuum. I swear to God, she said that. And it, it, it did prove true. So I'm very, you know, it, it sort of took the burning of that musical instrument that goes back to the turn of the century to really make me realize, you know, I'm not an individual. I'm just the latest in a legacy of creative people that have a lot of flaws. Correct. And there's a physicality to those B3s. I played those before, the big wooden oak ones, you know? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I'll send you a picture. And it's, you know, I think that uh, if that instrument could talk, oh my God, the stories from Gene Autry and uh, John Wayne to you name it, uh, famous cowboy stars. Tom Mix, et cetera. They all worked with my grandfather. And, um, you know, I think that organ would cry and I think it would laugh. You know, if you could, you know, give a voice duplicator. Anyway, I'm very, uh, um, it's funny you don't realize there's positive ghosts around you um, until you open up your mind and stop being a little less self-absorbed. Tell me about that. Um, you know, it's very easy to live inside your head, you know, especially if you tend to overthink things like me. It took me to write my first creative books, my first novel to appreciate, you know, I was really a writer trapped in a journalist's, I don't know, uh, stereotype, even though I love journalism and I'm still practicing this day. I, I don't think um, I was freed 
until I knew where I came from. Um, and uh, it was so thrilling to meet relatives, even though they've gone to the next place and realize, you know, they had lives probably far more interesting than I will ever have. And they're waiting to tell me things when I, you know, it's my time. So I'm, I'm, I'm somebody that does not believe in death. I wish we'd stop calling it death. Uh, I became obsessed with the afterlife and every book I'm going to write will contain that because I think we, I think death just got a bad rap. (laughs) <laughs> to be honest with you. And I think it became a political weapon to scare people. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if they, you know, when um, some emperor or pope read the, the the unvarnished Bible, he threw away a few pages talking about reincarnation and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It's like, this is a little inconvenient to try to exert control. So I have a weird view about it. Sometimes people find it inspiring. Other times they find it incredibly obnoxious. I do feel it's my job to try to bring hope, you know, in my own sarcastic, weird way, because we live in a lot of instantaneous darkness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my first novel, I'm not sure people even got all that about the Colorado Street Bridge, aka Suicide Bridge. I I wanted to show what people think was this forbidding, uh, spellbinding, you know, viaduct across two canyons uh, actually had some you know, uh, living qualities about it. And um, there is a whole line of thought that say some objects reflect the intentions of its other creators. And I do feel like that with this mysterious bridge. And I just couldn't not write about it. That's that's the way I usually find a story. I just can't resist it. It's like it's calling me to do it. It's so funny that you just said that, my friend, because this is going to take a little bit of a turn, this conversation. And it, the calling, it's so funny that you said that, because I was doing my research on you, and I noticed that you had written Arroyo, the historical fiction. Yeah. And in 2013, on Easter Sunday, my wife jumped off that bridge. And I found out about her death about 30 minutes after she had jumped down by the bottom of the cops, right? Oh. And so I say all this to say, in fact, you know what's even stranger, by the way? It's weird that you would bring up emergency, because about two years ago, I was watching Emergency, and there was a scene of a jumper at the top, and the cops were saying, don't jump, don't jump, and they're all at the bottom, including Randolph Mantooth. And I say all this to say, I processed the fuck out of this, my friend. I have. I've done it through service work. I've done it through therapy. It's why I'm, why I'm uh, working to be a therapist. And I've gone through so much hell, mental illness, just all kinds of things exploded at that precise moment at what was it? Probably 6.35 p.m. And the cop walked right up to me and said, your wife has passed. And she was 20 feet away from her, I guess maybe 200 feet away from me. And I bring this up. I talk about it a lot, quite frankly, because I want to share my story of my, my experience, my strength and my hope. But it's the storytelling thing. It's a storytelling aspect. And what I learned out of trauma was if you tell the story and whatever that means and how you tell it, you can get through trauma. So my question to you is, why do you think that bridge is so, it calls people like a siren song? I've, um, well, I am terribly sorry, first of all, to hear about your wife. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I won't get into the politics of suicide prevention. I think that bridge, because of its appearance and its history and some vibration of pull, it, it puts out there, folks are attracted to it. Now, 
all bridges do attract depressed, you know, people that see no hope from the Coronado bridge in San Diego to the Golden Gate bridge. But the Colorado street bridge early on was one of these bigger span bridges. It got a ton of publicity. And I think to be honest with you, the grapevine uh, publicized, it was a great place to die. It was a beautiful place to die because you're looking at the San Gabriel mountains, uh, you know, breathtaking valley I, I i don't know you know it 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 started happening very soon after the bridge was erected and in fact i real i learned charlie chaplin in his probably one of his most famous movies called the kid features a a distraught mom who goes to the bridge and puts her head down like she's gonna jump this is like 1920 yeah. the thing had only been up for seven years wow. so i don't know you know i know that in my novel I tried to say those that had lost folks off that bridge eventually saw them ascend and were reassured it was not the end. That's just my view, but it's it, it's a mystery. I mean, there's there's I'll tell you that bridge was born out of a lot of bad blood uh, that the city of Pasadena like does not want to acknowledge. There was fights over the design. There was a construction accident that. Uh, killed three people a, f- a few years before, a few months before it was supposed to be complete the bridge. Th- this, you know, uh, symbol of the new automobile age. And the city's first priority wasn't really mourning the people that died or comforting the loved ones. It was how soon can we get our beautiful bridge back to its normal construction progress so we can have a ribbon cutting? Things like that happened over and over and over again. So, uh, you know, even though the bridge is beautiful, it has an alter ego of darkness. If you go on the Internet, you can get sucked down a rabbit hole about the ghost stories yeah. of the Colorado Street Bridge. I, I don't know, but there's I, I feel like the bridge is is got a positive it is it, it wants the best for us and people misuse it. So I, I don't have any clear answer, but I can just tell you that your wife, I, I feel, is in a great place, probably looking down on that bridge and wondering why, you know, bad things happen off beautiful objects. I, I don't know. I, I wish I had more clarity. No, you're, that's right. I have conversations with her all the time about that. Yeah. You know, I, that's just, it's part and parcel of mental illness. And that's why I fight so hard for mental illness. But we're going to get a little happier. So well, can, can I can I just say something though? Oh, I, yeah. I I mean I'm I'm very I'm I'm highly sensitive to what you're saying, and you know even writing a book around that bridge is a bit of a cynical ploy for a first time novelist. I mean I and so I actually have my characters, and I will be happy to send you a copy of the book. I have my characters in the later part arguing about the morality of writing a book about the Colorado Street Bridge, and a lot of people have made money off the bridge. From an artistic point of view, organizations steal its design for things. It's been, you know, uh, George Harrison, you know, would have a lot of field day talking about this bridge, you know, over commercialized, over exploited, all the all, all those things. Um, but I did uh, take some of my proceeds from the book and give it to a mental health group called the Dirty Dee Hirsch Mental Health. Oh, Dee Hirsch. I used yeah. them after she died. Yeah, yeah. That's see another connection. I, you know, I, I just can't be the jerk that doesn't try to do something positive. 
when I'm writing about something this, that, I mean, that bridge is both the most gorgeous thing in San Gabriel Valley and the most heartbreaking. And, and it's in life is a paradox. And there's no more of a paradox than that, you know, bow art, bow arts structure. You're absolutely right. You know, that's something that it's interesting for me, quite frankly, because I, I have such a strange experience because I know the exact time and the exact place that my life changed. Yeah, it was it's pre suicide and post suicide. Yeah. Right? And, you know, quite frankly, and you were kind of talking a bit of a kind of almost a spiritual angle on this. And sometimes I wonder to myself, quite frankly, if I died that day, if I actually died that day and then my ghost has been kind of haunting uh, floating around and then trying to find a new host, but it found me ultimately because now I've learned the lessons from all of that trauma and all of the mental illness that came with it and all of the, just everything. I have learned these great lessons of wisdom and grace. So it, it's incredibly important for me. Uh, it should be. Have you ever read the book Journey of Souls? No, actually. I really recommend it. Don't read my book, Marilee's book, sorry. <laughs> Uh, don't read the buzzy books in the New York Times bestseller list. Read Journey of Souls, and it will make sense out of a lot of confusion of why we're here. It sure did for me. And um, I just lost uh, a really good friend of mine just lost his daughter, and I sent him this book in the hopes once the, the grief dies down a little, he'll pick it up. But uh, Journey of Souls, I'm telling you, you'll be surprised you know, uh, by the conclusions of this man who I believe cracks the cosmic code that Jesus, you know, never told us about or got censored. And, you know, basically the idea is life is a life is like school. And our goal is sort of to prove to ourselves, we can go to the next level. Mm -hmm. We pick, we pick our parents, we pick our circumstance. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen the movie defending your life, Oh, Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm, I am certain the, the writers of that movie read this book or understood the concept because I actually feel that's very close to what happens. Of course, I don't know if I'm going up there with Meryl Streep. <laughs> but if I'm with Rip Torn, I'm cool with that. It's <laughs> so great in that movie. I, I, um, you know, um, think about some of the legendary movies of our time. Okay. Groundhog's Day. Maybe you might not say that's legendary. That's about reincarnation. I would even suggest to you um, Wizard of Oz mm. is about reincarnation. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I'm not the first person to wonder, you know, should I be taking the red pill? Right. It's all just an illusion. And I, I kind of think it is. And so I don't really believe in uh, I don't want to get too far. Up. I don't believe this. I, I think the afterlife has been misnamed. I think that's the real life. And this is the pre-life. <laughs> What a great, I, I love that idea. Patent or trademark Chip Jacobs. Anyway. <laughs> I'll give you a cut of the money I get. <laughs> I'll talk to my lawyer first. I'll send the contract. <laughs> so you, what's so great about a lot of your writing, and I do kind of want to go through some of the books that you've written, but first of all, your mastery of the language is fantastic. And I got to call this out for a second. The first line in Arroyo, narrowed it down, haven't you buckaroos? That's like call me Ishmael territory, if you ask me. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you. Brilliant. So where do you get your, how would you define your style? Because it seems a little like knockabout and there are these, Brilliant lines, and I don't often praise people that are better than I am, but I will now. <laughs> um, you know, a lot. Of, I mean, I the first line of a book can take me a day or a week to, to derive. You know, and 
Um, you know, it just came to me. I, uh, my editor suggested I have a narrator for Arroyo. And so I just had this cantankerous old man with this gigantic secret that the young man that he's just met, he met before when he was a little boy, but it was, you know, the pre-reincarnated version of that person. And what's funny is I, you know, all the characters in Arroyo are based off people I know. And so that old man is a combination of my dad who has passed on and uh, a old elder businessman in Pasadena. And when I told him about the book and you inspired it, he got so ticked off at me. <laughs> he never spoke to me again. <laughs> Listen, the guy, he, he has an arc. He, he, he ascends. He, he gets over his pain to discover one of the most incredible things. And the guy like basically shut the door in my face. That was- <laughs> so um, I used to be one of those newspaper writers that was very particular about you know, his prose. And sometimes I was known to get the story back after it went to the copy desk and, and, you know, fix the lead that some editor screwed up. (laughs) So I read a lot. I I like the rhythm of writing. I like, you know, I I like, you know, uh, having um, pace and, you know, a long sentence and a short sentence. And you got to grab people's attention from the get go. And, um, you know, when you write a book, you're asking people for something precious besides their money you're asking them for seven eight hours out of a life of uncertain duration so you do i mean i do believe you have to grab them by the throat tell me more about writing has rhythm or the rhythm of writing what is that it's making even a long paragraph seem short it means you know you never have three long sentences together it means you can have a one word sentence and use it as a transition to another line you know, it's actually even looking at a page and asking yourself, is it too, is there too much dark space on the page and break things up? So, you know, it's it's almost innate. I do think writing, like being a musician, it's, you. yes, you can improve, but you either have it or you don't. When I was a kid, I you know, I had a friend who was a really good artist, and no matter what I did to try to imitate him, my stuff always looked like stick figures, uh, written by somebody in a really bumpy station wagon. <laughs> you know, writing came easy to me, and I and the way the art with others. My dad was a mathematical genius. He would point at a you know confusing array of numbers and symbols and cross his arms like I can't read. You know, see spot run. Right but again, he couldn't write like me. So it's you know we're always kind of bruising up against somebody else's talents. You know, it's when you've written a long time, you read a lot, that's essential. You just you just feel a, a force in you telling you, you know, when to write a long sentence, when to pack in a lot of info, and when to go light. Right. Uh, you, you kind of answered the question I'm going to ask at the end of this, but we're going to get to that in a little bit, because i got to start talking about you are, follow me here, but especially after talking with you on this uh, uh, show so far, you are the living embodiment of Huel Hauser. And now, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of the podcast audience who are unfamiliar with this absolute magician of life, his name is Huel Hauser. He was a, it, it was like local t- TV, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he would go through and he had this thing. And, and I think you'll appreciate this, Chip. There's this concept that I've been really hammering on lately. It's some rabbi I read. And he said that we should live our life in radical amazement to get up in the morning and see the clouds and say, that's incredible. Or see the sun and say, good morning, sun. And the last line is so good because the guy says, 
To be spiritual is to be amazed. And I thought that's Hugh Hauser. That, uh, radical amazement. Yeah, that, that really does capture him, doesn't it? He, um, he, he was like almost like a, had a childlike wonder, mm-hmm. you know, about existence where other people complain or, you know, they see a sunset and it's like, eh, not that much different than yesterday's. He, I mean, he, he I don't know, he, that was the beauty in, of him. In, in a way, he didn't grow old, you know. That's what, I mean, think about it when you're a kid. I mean, you can be taken to the most, you can go to a hardware store that would bore the pants of a 20-year-old, but in a hardware store, you know, you, your imagination runs free. A heel hazard is very much like that. And I, I must say, you know, there are certain people like him. I don't, you know, the world didn't deserve him. <laughs> the world didn't deserve him. And, and it would be, if you if you watch a video, it'd be almost easy to write him off as kind of a Pollyanna, kind of yeah. a gomer pile, goofy guy. But it's a lot deeper than that. And, he, you know, uh, he was somebody you think that would pay to do that job because he got to go out and meet interesting people and go to fascinating places and there was not an ounce of pretense in him. No, none whatsoever. I, I think I may have mentioned, I think in the email I sent you, but I met him at the Metro station. He was there and my wife and like, I got, I got a photo. And of course he was wonderful. You know, you want a picture? Yeah. That's great. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and believe me, as you probably know, you meet a lot of celebrities and if those cameras aren't around, it's like, get the F away from me yeah. or, you know, looking down at you. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, a genuine article that guy. I do. I I tend to be an enthusiastic person. He was enthusiastic, and I'm drawn to enthusiastic people. You know, I, I've actually been to book signings when really famous writers and authors are there, and they're up in front of the crowd that has come out to see them on a weeknight, plunk down their money for the book, and they look like they're just going through a a sort of dressed up colonoscopy. And, <laughs> I don't understand why they're not reveling and savoring this moment that they may relive on their deathbed before they go on to their next place. And it's, I, I don't, why, you know, why would you offer up something creative and not go there in high spirits? Yeah. And it's because they don't understand that we are all interconnected by magic. Yeah. Also, we don't know what kind of day they're having. That's true. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, I I did not discover empathy until probably later than I should. But once I did, my wife says, uh, you know, if somebody needs a little spare estrogen, they can tap in my veins because I will cry at a sappy commercial. I cried at home alone. Oh. Um, I I especially stuff involving father sons. There is just this well of emotion in me. Actually, it's part of the reason I'm writing the novel I am now because, um, you know, they say a son's job is to make their father's life difficult. Well, I accomplished that, but it went the other way. Uh, and I don't know. So I'm, I, I think empathy, I would rather have somebody high empathy IQ than high intellectual IQ in a heartbeat. Absolutely. EQ over IQ. My, my, it's, that's exactly what it is. So now may I start plugging your books and talking about them, please, as part of the show? Yes, but one thing. Don't you think there's like some weird cat spell on America that makes empathy look like weakness really? and objectification or dehumanization? You know, that is the coin of the realm. And I don't get it. I think people that are arguing on Facebook 
would, if they met face to face, probably be in tears because the brutality in them would be laid bare. And so I, that's one of the problems of technology. It makes it easier to look at somebody else in a pigeonhole rather than the complex organism we are. So anyway, plug away. (laughs) That's a hard segue now. That was pretty good. I know. I really should have worked in some, some guitar riff in there. You really should. Just like throwing the pretenders or something. Um, yeah. Okay, so, boom. I really got to talk about this strange as it seems, the impossible life of Gordon Zoller. I, the, first of all, out of the gate, of a huge Plan 9 from Outer Space fan, so he was obviously the music supervisor on that, but he broke his neck, it seems like, and then, yeah. tell me about, and, but here's the best part. I, there's, a, there's, there's a line, and I think you wrote this, or maybe you used one of the reviews, that said, that's when the miracles began. Right. Uh, yeah, he, um, and by the way, uh, Mary Lee didn't disclose that we, the Mary Lee, Reinhardt, and myself are working on a series that we plan to pitch based on Strange as it seems. And so I've got to know both of those two. They are uh, a couple hidden gems of Los Angeles, both very talented. And, um, it, you know, so anyway, I, I'm a big fan of Mary Lee and Reinhardt. My uncle was a daredevil. In um, 1930s Pasadena, one is the or in Sierra Madre Pasadena out this way uh, was one of those kids always told by his mom and others, be careful, you're going to break your neck. Well, it turned out to be a prophecy, not a warning. So he broke his neck in a terrible gym accident at 14 on a rainy day about a year before Pearl Harbor. He wasn't expected to live two weeks, and he ended up living 35 years. He lived life harder than 20 abled men. He, if you called him crippled or disabled, he would ask one of his friends to punch you in the in the kisser. He was a man of the future. You know, he you know, um, a lot of people in wheelchairs and having accidents, you know, they go through the cycles of grief. Right. Yeah. He his cycle of grief was like is like a high speed centrifuge. He just went out of the depression and anger right into acceptance to see what he could do with his life. You know, he broke his neck. And an event, he recovered because he had grit and magic, but his accent also broke his family, my mom's family. My grandfather, the Hollywood musician, died from stress. My mom lost any chance to go to college and develop herself. And Gordon Zoller, though blessed with all this talent and drive and fire in the belly, you know, carried around like some terrible albatross you know, the, the carnage of what he created because the financial ruin, the emotional ruin. He somehow, kind of like a shark, you know, uh, knew that the key to life was moving forward, yep. you know, and not looking in a mirror. Although sharks don't look in a mirror, they just look at <laughs> legs. Right. But he, what I think is interesting is when I was a kid, the, that magic had worn off him. I was meeting him later in life, and he didn't have a lot of tolerance for hyper little kids running around his bed. He lived in a sensational house uh, uh, above the Sunset Strip in now West Hollywood on a street called Blue Jay Way. Uh. Um, Blue Jay Way, of course, is the name of the street George Harrison wrote a song about. My uh, my uncle actually had hippies and Beatle fans, girl fans, knocking on his door all the time saying, is George there? Because they got the address screwed up because they're probably baked or whatever. And my uncle actually would play tricks on them. He'd go, yeah, George is staying here. He went down the hill to get some cigarettes. Would you mind cleaning out my pool till he comes back? And these hippie girls would clean out my uncle's pool. <laughs> uh, 
but he, uh, you know, my grandfather never wanted his kids to go into Hollywood, but after he died to stave off homelessness and poverty for he and his mom, my uncle took my grandfather's music, reformatted it and sold it to early TV and to film when it was going through all uh, penny pinching era. And he eventually started running the largest post-production house, independent post-production house in Hollywood Had 30 people, a guy not expected to live at all, you know, with an injury so bad, he was in medical journals. I did not like him. And I was, a, I was a pallbearer at his funeral. He was the first person I ever was glad was dead. Wow. And, and I had no idea what the future would bring. I do remember at his funeral at Forest Lawn, I'm 13 or 14 years old. It had been raining the night before. We almost lost the grip on his casket. And as I later would realize about my uncle, that was him saying, I want to turn this casket into, into, into a toboggan. I want to run. I want to race down that hill. You know, don't put me in a hole. Right. Let me see how much speed I can get. That defined him. I mean, he traveled to more continents than you can imagine. Okay. He got caught in Cuba when Castro was taken over. He got stuck in Munich during the terrorism incident um, in 72. He he had a Forrest Gumpian talent. For <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. Forrest Gumpian. Brilliant. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Well, he did. And, you know, how weird to go from being the person I was glad was inside that mahogany box to being the hero of my life. You know, I mean, I mean, he uh, uh, he's a great example of why you should never complain. And he lived this exciting, thrilling life. You know, he in, in the end, celebrity didn't matter to him. Uh, it was achievement. And he came up with brilliant ideas ahead of their time. And I think even though they got batted down because he's in a wheelchair, can they trust this little guy? That seems like a little wind would kill him. But he, you know, uh, he created a legacy that lives on. And um, I just can't wait to meet him in the afterlife. Although I have had people ask me, what are you going to do when you see him? And I say, duck. <laughs> I'm worried he's going to throw a haymaker. How dare you write my story? But I, I love my Uncle Gordon where I once uh, loved him. Sure. Uh, okay. Next, Smogtown, and I'm gonna I'm bringing this up for a couple for really one reason, and that is because I know that it's about the the long burning history of pollution in yeah. Los Angeles. Now I'm from LA, and I remember when I was about seven years old, there were days that I vaguely remember this. It was like a high smog day; couldn't go outside. Right? right? Yeah. They. Um, I mean, do you remember that they used to print the sm- smog forecast on the front page? Yes, I do actually. Yeah. You know, um, smog hit L.A. in July 1943 in a booming Los Angeles, arguably the coolest town in the world, with manufacturing and suburbia and Hollywood and oil and agriculture, all these blessings. Smog came down like this biblical poison, and it didn't really relent for 35 years. And it was a poison of our own making because of our infatuation with cars without understanding the technological and atmospheric implications. And uh, believe me, I'm a liberal arts guy. I barely got through chemistry and, and I wanted to write a sociological book. And so it's really about humans reacting to crisis and the drama was all there. And I felt so fortunate nobody else had done it. It's not an engineering book. It's a story about doctors and moms and lowly bureaucrats and immigrant scientists 
banding together when they had nothing else in common to rescue a city somewhere it needed to be evacuated. Um, we're trying to turn that into a series as well because people don't realize as we fight climate change, we've already gone through one climate crisis and we won because people put aside their differences and sacrifice a little something. So it's, you know, I'm really proud of that book. It, it suffered from terrible timing. It came out at the beginning of the Great Recession. So folks didn't care about it, but it, it endured. It's, you know, gone around the world. And I met met some interesting people and had some crazy experiences because of that book. And, um, you know, I, I'm a child of the smog of Pasadena. I, I remember we lived behind Mount Wilson. You could not see it on smoggy days. We played baseball, and it's and it sounded like an asthma award. Uh, you know, it, it changed Los Angeles from killing our farmland to influencing the Cold War, enticing mobsters. But mainly, it made us realize, you know, we have one atmosphere, and it doesn't care about your political persuasion or your tears. It cares about you putting up less crap. At a thousand percent correct. In fact, I will say, um, you know, just being a kid and just kind of walking out and taking that big gulp of the terrifying smog. I mean, it was a <laughs> back then. one of the funny things. I mean, there's a lot of actually funny things about smog. I, I must say, even, even a minute. That's an odd thing to say, by the way. I, I know, but there's, you know, um, I tell people, you know, when they ask about writing a book like this, you know, I tell them, you know, the front page stories are important. It's the back page stories where you get the humanity, like the USC student whose tie tie changed in smog and was rushed to a laboratory, the cat at uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel that keeled over dead from smog, the crazy World War II meteorologist uh, with um, Einstein hair who who was a lead-foot driver and wanted to build a 300-foot-tall smog sewer. You know, this happened. You know, and we just tended to forget it because you look outside today and it's a pretty blue sky. So, yeah, it's, you know, you get those things from looking at little quality of life or human interest stories on the back page. It's absolutely beautiful. So here's the thing. I promise you that we'd be done by six. I got like another 10 minutes in me if you want. I want to keep keep you going too long. But if I do that, I'm going to have to just say your other books. And we'll go on to one last question. You ready? Yeah. Here we go. Histories. Uh, I, I read, I'm looking at my notes. Uh, you wrote the People's Republic of Chemicals. Yes, that was a follow up to Smog Town, probably my least favorite book for a number of reasons. 2013, you had a brutal year. It was not my favorite year either, but we couldn't let Smog Town go without realizing, you know, part of the reason America has gotten rid of its air pollution problem is because we exported it abroad without sourcing. And when China had the Olympics in 2008, it was it was uh, beyond L.A.'s worst day, largely because they're making a third of our crap. You know, I guarantee you, you look around your office and the majority of it has been made in China, you know, and the majority of it was made previously in the U.S. Um, We don't realize the downside of globalization until it bites us like this. So, yeah. So it's about China. But during the Olympics, do you know, um, guess how much China spent a day to blow the smog away for the foreign tourists? Just guess. Uh, a billion yen. I don't know. <laughs> no, a billion dollars a day. What? A day? They spent a billion dollars a day. They, um, you know, uh, and it was a bit of a Potemkin village. They, uh, China is kind of like one of these places that is investing a massive amount in alternative uh, energy while also staying in their love affair with coal. 
which of course is pushing us towards climate change. The sure. cliff. So anyway, we had to write that story. It, it's kind of it wasn't alarmist, but um, the stories of what happened to the people in China and how they try to live protecting their environment in a totalitarian society. It's really interesting. You just don't hear about it like the Russian people don't hear about Ukraine because the censors are so damn good. They call it the Great Firewall of China. And some of their environmental riots there, uh, you think a Hollywood screenwriter on Mushroom made it up. Right. Right. Okay. I have uh, one. Okay. I do want to talk now about the Darkest Glare. Tell me about that a little bit. That's your new book. Yes. The Darkest Glare uh, came out of a, of a story. Um, it's, a re, it's, a re, uh, it's, it's a story that I updated uh, with a new title and new, new ideas and organization. But it's based on a 1979 murder triangle. Uh, 1979 was a very dark, cynical time. Like today, there's tons of parallels. And it's what happens when ambition toggles into greed. And you invite somebody into your world to make money uh, without appreciating they have a scary past. One, um, a, a very talented debonair uh, and troubled man is killed, murdered in an assassination uh, through a plate glass window Jesus. Uh, at, at the story. And as I came to learn, he was bipolar and that both, that made him very vulnerable to being killed and it also made him likely to rip people off that wouldn't take a, I'm sorry. And, you know, I don't think folks realize that people with mental illness, far from being the perpetrator most times, they're the victim. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, so it, it's a gothic story. It's, it's kind of like Fargo, but mm-hmm. in Los Angeles of 1979. And, um, one of the it, it, um, it's it is a cautionary example when good people do nothing in the face of evil. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's frightening. But you're right. So what you're doing. I mean, one of the you know, um, you know, the old reporter in me loves new stories, but it it is self sabotage as an author because as you're seeing, I jump around from genre. You know, historical fiction, biography, environmental, true crime. Yep. I have a very restless intellect. But that's okay. You know, I, I, you know, I get bored easily and, um, you know, I'm always searching for a surprise. And um, the story about Jerry Snyderman, who's passed on, he's the anti-hero of the story. He was an L.A. original. And I just asked people to check it out. And you'll see, you know, just because you survive a, a murder scare doesn't mean that you've kind of expunged the demons that got you know, um, shotgunned into you. And, that, and that's what happened to my friend. He eventually succumbed to mental illness as well. So, um, you know, these are things you never think about when you're first chasing a mystery. No, no, that's, I mean, I'm bipolar. So I know that gig pretty well. You know, it's a scary disease. And there are a lot of things that you can do that are great. Um, I believe that people who are manic are in touch with something else. That's why they, the Indian American or the native Americans made people who are bipolar shaman. That, oh my God. That is, um, I think I must be doing it for a reason, Jeff, because I'm writing a novel based on a true story of the most brilliant person at my very difficult prep school. He was bipolar. Mm -hmm. He, uh, was interested in the cloud computing Mm -hmm. and it far advanced before it became commercial. 
And um, he used to be up for days on end, yeah. typing away at the on his keyboard. Been there. And in this manic, <laughs> you know, spasm of creativity oh. and psychic burnout. And I think eventually it made his body susceptible to cancer. And this, this, this is my latest book. It's a follow-up to Arroyo. It's going to be called Later Days, I believe. And um, it, it's about forgiveness and about asking yourself whether it's good or a curse to be the son of a great man. Would it be better just to be the son of a good man? rather than a great man who casts a long shadow. That was my prep school. Wow. Wow. That sounds magical. Okay. I got to get to the, there's just two more things I want to talk about. Megan, okay. My favorite band is Squeeze. Go. Your favorite band is Squeeze? Oh, I saw you wrote about them. Oh, yeah. Squeeze. Um, uh, I discovered, um, I was a Beatle maniac. Yep. And do you remember, um, they were always trying to anoint somebody, the next Lennon McCartney, oh, yeah. the next yeah. Lennon McCartney. Well, Glenn Tilbrook, yep. who I've met, and Chris Difford, who I have not, but I wished, they were the real heirs. And it wasn't because they were copycats. It's because they elevated and took it to the next level. I got into Squeeze. I wrote an essay about them uh, on my site. It's called Some Fantastic Place. Yep. And um, I got into them at college at USC uh, when we used to party on Thursday nights because a few people had class on Fridays and we would get pie-eyed and we'd we'd moonwalk on the ceiling of our apartment. Our friends would pick us up. Squeeze would always be the band that I would moonwalk to. The song called Inquintessence about a guy with an imaginary girlfriend. Uh And they were literate, sarcastic, funny. They, They told what's called kitchen sink dramas based on soap operas in England. They just spoke to me, and the musicianship is incredible. Yeah. Their songs don't sound alike, but they were kind of like like the Kinks, kind yeah, of like exactly. wrong for their time. But I I um, I would give my kidney to see uh, them play a B side concert. They just they're magical, and like Leonard McCartney, their two voices are an octave apart, and they 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 form like this other organism. Yeah. Squeeze just brings joy to people. And it's the oddest thing. And some some people roll their eyes when I'm just, you know, blathering on about them. But um, the song Some Fantastic Place mm-hmm. um, has got me through a lot of darkness in my life, including when my mom passed away. And it's based on a, the song is based on someone they knew was the girlfriend of, of Glenn Tilbrook, who died of leukemia. But as she was in the hospital, she was talking about where she expected to go. And I dare anyone to watch that video without a tissue at hand. I, you have a great line about in that essay. You say that uh, Chris, Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook, your music is my joy machine. Fantastic. A funny story. I met Glenn Tilbrook in uh, 2014 when I was coming off a bad year, not like you. And um, I was I've been around I've been around famous people before as a reporter, never got tongue tied at all. I get around him and I swear I, I turn into a, like a eight year old girl. Yeah. And I didn't know what to say to him as I went up to get his autograph. And I said, I love label with love. I want to steal it for a short story. And I realized you never say the word steal around a musician. No. Because he looked up at me with almost like Lord of the Ring red eyes. And then. <laughs> And then he was very kind to me. He let, you know, he, uh, he let me stop digging a hole, <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know. There's just something about their music and the way they tell s- stories. stories. And 
Yeah. And they're not, you know, um, I kind of like, um, I kind of like that they're off people's radar, but it pisses me off to no end that Donovan is in the rock and roll hall of fame, Yeah, but not squeezed. Are you kidding me? And so they have a magnificent catalog and no, I do not get paid by them. I could talk about, I'll tell you what, let's do an entire show next time on squeeze alone. I, Please. I mean, come on. That, even that record's great. But before yeah. we, uh, I'm going to sew this up here, and I'm going to ask you kind of a final shot here, and that is, does the story find you, or do you find the story? The story finds me 100%. Um, the best thing you can do as a writer, it sounds weird, is though you're focused on what you think you're interested in, that's really not what the universe wants you to harp on. You have to have really good peripheral vision. And the best stories I've ever gotten is not what I was aiming for. It's what I heard somebody say in in an awkward silence or as a sideline to another comment. I never would have written about the bridge as a novel if I had not heard somebody make a comment or if I had not seen something, a little throwaway line in a coffee table book. I wouldn't have found some of my best newspaper stories if somebody didn't say something under their breath, you know? And um, absolutely finds you. You asked Mary Lee, by the way, how do you know when you're done? Yeah. I'll tell yeah. you. Your character tells you. Uh-huh. you know, your character tells you this is where we need to park. You've created me. Now I'm going to go live fuller. Um, for, so, yeah, my character has to be telling me and I have to be weeping. Every time I finished a book, I've been weeping and not out of self, you know, uh, worship, but because I'm sad that my characters are now waving goodbye in a, you know, in a, on the Concord. On the Concord. Well done. Might as well, no, supersonic. Super, whatever. It's been, what an incredible conversation. I always like talking to writers, quite frankly, because they speak like they write. And you certainly had that in spades, my friend. So the last thing we're going to do here is, you may have noticed on the last show, but we're going to pretend to say goodbye. I'm going to do a little fake uh, goodbye. You're going to do a little fake goodbye. And then we're going to quote unquote, hang up and do a quick chat later. Deal? Deal. All right, here we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen of the Inspire, ah, fuck it. It was great talking to you, Chip. You're a really, really great guy. And I'll tell you this also, going through doing some of the research, I used to live in Pasadena, like 92 to like 95, and everything was like, oh, Shakers, right. Oh, Huntington uh, Gardens, right. It, what a gorgeous town. Gus's Barbecue? I mean, come on. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's a gorgeous town, but Pasadena, like all cities, is about 25 different cities. Yeah. You know? Oh, so, talk about old town. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Uh, yeah, where the lattes are expensive and the parking is worse. <laughs> right. Okay, I've had a great time. Your turn, my friend. Uh, I'm uh, farewell, uh, Jeff. You asked great questions. You did your research, and uh, you know uh, you like squeeze, so you are obviously exquisite taste. I do. All right. Um, you're going to have to pay me for this interview, by the way. I don't know if I told you that or not. I will send you my invoice and uh, we're done. Hang on a second and click. <laughs>